When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Screen Talk. I'm Eric Cohn. I'm Ann Thompson. And we've got a lot to discuss because the fall festivals are, well, they're basically here, but they're next week. And lots of movies to anticipate a strike that continues to develop in some fascinating ways. But why don't we start on a different note? Because you finally got to catch up with me on a movie this week, a short film that I saw back at Cannes from Pedro Almodovar. And uh, I'm dying to know what you thought of it. So... Tell me. So it's it's fascinating as an Almodovar film because anyone who knows his work knows that he's very florid and colorful and big and and production design is always very front and center. And here you have a, a good old fashioned western, very bare bones. You know, it isn't like it isn't pretty, but um, and of course we have the the designer. You know, giving them giving these western actors. Uh, Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal, the most beautiful clothes you can imagine. Saint Laurent, you know, who you know backed the whole thing, but yeah. it's not really a fashion show at all. It's not. It's not like that old that that movie. What was that movie that that um, uh, the Italian director Guadagnino did with all these women wandering around in fashionable outfits that made no oh, sense? Oh, the one with Tilda Swinton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. am love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful so, movie. Yeah, no, I am love is a beautiful movie. No, this was a short. This was a oh, a, the a short film. Short, a fashion short. I know yeah. what you're talking about. I am love. Talking is about a great beautiful movie. women walking around. I, 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 I mean, come on, come on, come on, come on. It's not. I am love. I am love is a real movie that I take seriously. No, and it was. It was a you know a, a fashion short. But anyway, they a lot of directors get into these things. But this is for real. What it it, it is absolutely um, strange way of life is these two men see each other again after 25 years. And there is some kind of expositional dialogue in there that I was like raising my eyebrows about, but it's so beautiful. The two men are so good with each other. And um, of course they feel very strong feelings from 25 years ago that come back up again. Yeah. It's a gay Western. It's funny when people found out that it was the two of them, they were, it was like, there was like a coy element to it where it was like, well, Westerns have been homoerotic for a while without being explicit. So we're going to pretend this is one of those, but no, this is a very gay Western. And also. But if they don't, they don't, he doesn't, he cuts away. He doesn't give us the full, the, the full Monty. We get to see some good, um, footage of Pedro Pascal's ass, which I was very happy about. This is true. It's look, it's a, it's a very romantic piece of filmmaking as Pedro as pure Pedro I like I love the idea of him working in the short form not only because obviously he's sort of experimenting with working in English for the first time after human voice with with Tilda but uh it it just distills his aesthetic in a really beautiful way you know what he brings to the western to turn it into this sort of sense of poetic yearning that's not as you know sort of bleak as Brokeback Mountain or something like that 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 feels more sort of hopeful in a way 
because you're sort of enmeshed in the bond between these two guys in a way that doesn't feel like it's, you know, despair is really What's gratifying. interesting is that you're so enmeshed in it that even if you walk in knowing that it's going to be over in, you know, whatever, 38, 40 minutes, whatever it is, if you know that, it, you, you forget it. And I was so caught up in it that when it ended, I was like, no, yeah, you're not the first. No, I want more. It's like the first act of a movie in a way. Yeah, it, no, you're very caught up in it. You're you're very enmeshed in it. And and I I wish it was longer. I wish it was a whole. Uh, I do wish it was a whole thing. It's it's an amuse bouche. But he's. I think that Sony Pictures Classics is considering. They haven't made the announcement yet, but I believe there's some talk of putting it together with the Tilda Swinton human voice as a, as a double feature, which I think is a great idea. Um, if yeah. I mean, around. I think people would go. He's been trying to make uh, an English language movie since he talked about directing sister act in the nineties. And then of course, last year we thought he was going to make a movie with Kate Blanchett that fell apart. He was supposed so. to do this Meryl Street movie and yeah. he bailed on it. He couldn't do, he, he told me, I remember talking to him in Cannes. He just couldn't bring himself to take the chance, you know, right. So now and he's carving so now out he bit by bit. Dipping his toe in, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really smart. And this speaks, obviously, to something else we were going to talk about today, which is this uh, broader trend of major directors playing around with short films at a moment when short films are can be made in a lot of different kinds of ways. So here, in essentially, it's, brand, it's branded content, right? But it's a branded content play that allows a filmmaker to make a short film. And then Netflix which can do short films in a different kind of way because of streaming has this uh, Wes Anderson film that's going to premiere at Venice next week. The wonderful story. So the wonderful of story of Henry Sugar is one of his uh, animated, you know, stop motion animation films, but it's also a Raoul Dahl project, which is why it's Netflix. In other words, they have right. the whole uh, library. And it had so, to be Netflix. Yeah, it, it had to be Netflix. And so um, they, they, I think it's a great matchup. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I loved this uh, this book when I was a kid, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, and it's a bunch of different short stories. And I believe Wes Anderson has made several others, and this is sort of the first the first one. But it's a, it's a really good story. Roald Dahl has a complicated reputation because of some stuff he said about Jewish people back in the day, but Wes Anderson seems to kind of get outside of any kind of potential controversy with stuff like that. I mean, you know, he's still... Uh, you know, indebted to Bill Murray and hasn't had any issues there. So, but the other thing I think is kind of fascinating is that in the aftermath of uh, the success of Asteroid City, this thing is only going to like further cement, you know, whatever's going on. He's just never been at, at a, you know, sort of greater moment in a way in terms of his cultural impact. No, I mean, I think Asteroid City is going to do very well uh, at, at the Oscars. I think, you know, it might be surprising to some people how how you know they're going to go for it they're going to push it so um i think he's in a great place uh right now the question with the oscars though is that there is a short film category live action category yeah. and last year one of the slots was taken up by alice Rohrwalker's short la poupie and that ended up getting an, a nomination but not the win and uh, some people protested that this was a big budget you know big elaborate was Disney you know, Plus production it, design, and they, yeah, yeah. They, and and, you, and if you watched it on Disney Plus, it was dubbed, which was disgusting. Yeah, that was, that was like sort yeah. of the default. You had to change yeah. it. But the thing is, 
it was Disney Plus because Alfonso Cuaron brought it into Disney. Alice Warwalker is, you know, an auteur who lives in the countryside in Italy. She just happened to benefit from the fact that a, another major director brought her in. It was one of her movies. It wasn't an obvious sort of commercial thing. And Not at all. Like, it was beautiful. I loved they, it. Disney and bought I, like billboards. I would have put it. it. I would have nominated it myself. But the trick here is that a lot of the traditionally a lot of these these shorts are are from early you know young filmmakers on the yeah. rise see they're, yeah, yeah. They're, they're they're low budget they're not and and lately i have to say they've become more and more produced more and more bigger names are getting involved with them right. backing them and giving them budgets and i'm just a little worried that the the uh, emerging talent aspect of this is going to get lost well part of it that's kind of fascinating is that the kind of the entire content game has changed and everyone wants to make things that can hold people's attention and so the short form has a currency that is appealing to anybody trying to get things made, including established directors. And the Oscars game has gotten more complicated and everybody wants to get in as many categories as they can, which means you can game the short film category. I and mean, there's so many different ways you can get in there, but it right. can also and work big, against It's them. the same thing. The bigger the budget, the bigger the promo budget, the bigger the, the uh, amount of, of time and energy that is being put into it. Um, yeah the more likely it is to get in. And and that that didn't used to be the case for short films. There didn't used to be big Oscar campaigns around short films. No. I mean, I've talked to people who have said, you know, these days a lot of short filmmakers to compete have to spend more money on an awards campaign than they did to make the film in the first place. Correct. Correct. And that's sort of the real conundrum. Yeah, that's so that's, that's sort of where, you know, part of where we're at um, yeah. on, on that front. But um, so the other, so the strikes are going on there uh you I, you know it's like one step forward two steps back you know it, oh my god there the the AMPTP is talking to the writers guild oh my god there was a meeting with the heads of the major studios and the yeah. writers guild and the negotiators oh my god they leaked the entire deal that they offered the so that everybody could see how far I think they recognize the AMPTP recognizes that they have lost the PR war, that they have not been looking good. And and so it looks like a reasonable set of offers, actually. It doesn't look it looks like a lot better than but, anything before. But the strategy of, of putting that out in the public seems to be a consistently poor they are uh, judgment call. They are because toned every up. time that, that the AMPTP has said here is what we offered. Look how good it is. The WGA comes back and said, no, that's not what we discussed. And you're all terrible and everything falls apart. So stop telling not, people. And it's not good enough. And you you betrayed the implicit understanding that you weren't yeah. going to, there was a blackout with the media and so forth. And so everybody just got their backs up even more. Yeah, um, but they're going to keep talking. They've yeah. got to keep talking. Uh, there has to be, I, I predict that they will continue to hammer things out for a few more weeks. It's going to take a while, but they're going to, I can, I don't know how to say, to say this any other way. I think they're in the ballpark of being able to, to nail this down. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that would be it's nice. Not, the WGA isn't going to get everything they want. And the AMPTP is going to have to give up more than they want. But they I think that the WGA will be able to go back to their members and say, hey, look, we got this much. 
at least what we've heard is that there is progress in terms of people recognizing that they have to cave on things that maybe a few months ago they well they're giving them some kind of writer's room guarantees and they're giving them some a lot more detail on the ai front and the streaming aspect seems to be moving in an interesting direction in terms of at least some greater data some transparency behind the scenes but not in front of the world right but if but, that but that's not there's no there and they're raising residuals but residuals for what you know yeah. residuals is is the old world the new world of streamers is upfront payments yeah you know. yeah so there are no residuals there yeah so the sag strike continues and there are major fall movies getting waivers like priscilla the sofia coppola movie got a waiver and we don't know exactly who's going to show up at the Venice premiere, but uh, Duncan Crabtree Ireland is out there encouraging actors who are getting these waivers to promote their films at the fall festivals. So well, that's interesting. Very so interesting. far, you know, the the Viola Davises and and you know of the world have not wanted to participate even with a waiver. But that was a production. That was about going into production. Right. Right. Um, now you have this thing that's done. Do you get out there in front? I mean, obviously, it would the the question is, what does this mean for award season? If you, if everybody just sort of comes together and says, yeah, they the SAG said it was fine, we're going to do this, you could have a more or less sort of normal award season for a lot of films, just not the you know Netflix ones or other ones that are AMPTP affiliated, but you would still have major actors out there. But a lot of them might, if there's backlash, a lot of them might still be reticent to do that. So it's not our, really cl- cool. our colleague Brian Welk is working on um and you know the market. Uh, story for for Toronto and you know what is this market looking like and it looks like there might be some action there but it'll be behind the scenes and we'll never know until the strikes are resolved yeah because some of these deals could be made you know with companies that aren't uh, party to to the you know they can't make a deal because they're right conversations in in smoke-filled rooms and handshakes between murky figures yeah 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 we'll see we'll see how that plays i mean there are a lot of movies for sale in toronto i mean quite a few the yeah hopefully some of them are actually good and ellen curris and you know with you know kate winslet and you know there there's there's a lot of stuff there's a lot of uh action i uh the new lodge lee you know the lays and desirable as opposed to late desirable so we'll we'll see how that yeah i'm excited about that and um but in in telluride or if you want to be uh loosey-goosey about it because you're not allowed to say what's in telluride um in telluride or toronto or or both we're going to see emerald fennel saltburn saltburn is 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 a takeoff on the uh english aristocracy and yeah and uh, it looks it looks beautiful the stills look promising that i saw i mean it's really hard to tell it's so different clearly from promising young woman and when you have one movie out of the gate that gets a lot of attention like that and wins an oscar everyone's gonna at least as a starting point see it in that context i hear good things about rosamund pike um excited to to see it um i hear it's sexy you know and racy um uh there's rustin Based on a true story, directed by George C. Wolfe with um, Common Domingo, yeah. uh, Nyad uh, from the documentary filmmakers um, Vassar Helia and Chin, um, with uh, a 
64-year-old Annette Benning playing the 64-year-old Diana Nyetti swam from Cuba to Florida, which is an amazing feat after, story. on her fifth try. It's nice and that, that actually seems like a good match of, of filmmakers yeah. material. It's their, it's their feature debut. And then Poor Things, can't wait. Right. Yorgos Lanthimos doing his thing on, on a big scale. Good buzz. Um, Looks and- like Maestro will probably go from Venice to New York, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So that one's kind of set up for some kind of success, um, both in terms of its like global profile and then getting the sort of New York Philharmonic crowd sign off, presumably. So that, that so if be- movie picked up uh, Priscilla, what is your sense of uh, that company's future? You actually sat in on a rather interesting uh, Q&A. Yeah. So so. To be clear, I mean, movie picked up some international territories on Priscilla because it's A24 in the U.S., but that's happened many times and because this is a, a company that has a pretty significant global profile relative to its U.S. one, which is fairly small as a as a streamer, first and foremost, even though they do theatrical. And I listened to this fascinating talk this past week with Jason Rappel, who's, who's one of the chief executives there, um, essentially laying out this idea that um, they're trying to create scale for the future of releasing art house movies, uh, much in the way that Netflix sort of was able to create scale for auteur films. You know, by building out this successful streaming model, they could spend more on certain kinds of movies. Now, eventually that hit a wall and, be- and became more challenging. And now it's they have fewer. They're, they're not doing that as much. And with movie, it's not really clear, you know, what the long term play is in in that respect. But it is really interesting to see a company like this that is so invested in bringing art house films into the streaming era, because that's a really challenging thing to do. A lot of independent art house distributors have output deals with companies like Hulu and Hulu is not a streamer that is necessarily interested in a lot of challenging stuff. If you have a black and white movie, even that it's going to scare off a lot of streamers. So it's it's fascinating to see a company that's saying, actually, if we can do this on a large international scale, we can find the audiences who do want this kind of uh, experience and you know things that are not Hollywood blockbusters. And I think that's a smart way to start thinking about things. It's like in the streaming world, you're not talking about American audiences. You're talking about a global audience. And you can get to a much bigger audience if you're smart about it. So they have like 12 million subscribers, right? I was yeah, talking to Iris Sachs, the, yeah. the director of Passages. And, you know, I think, great I think films. Uh, that's an example of the kind of movie that they're they're willing to to back. Uh, yeah. Along with the decision to leave last year and, and uh, back in the day under the Silver Lake, you know. Uh, well, yeah, another I mean, that, that's what's the other thing it seems notable about this company is that they they only insist on streaming rights for for the pay one window and then everything else they're willing to make deals with other folks. So any other streamer that's you know larger is not doing that. You know, Netflix is not going to sell off theatrical rights. So they're also creating a business that's like a not one size fits all kind of approach, which I think is is smart as long as they can continue to make their streaming business worthwhile. So their big challenge is getting, I think, uh, a North American audience invest in what they're doing, because you still need that, even if there's people all over the world. I agree. I agree 100%. Yep. That's true for everybody. I think the 
the the real question for everybody who's trying to find their way in the streaming landscape now is, you know, who are the audiences that you're ignoring? Because for a really long time, it felt like everyone was taking their audiences for granted and audiences are changing all the time. So when the story is all- Well, if you're not dependent on theatrical and you have this enormous audience that you can go to, then, then that could be- uh, a, a useful uh, alternative for a lot of films that are having trouble getting picked up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so gasoline rainbow you wrote about that's also yeah. a movie release. The yeah, Ross brothers. They, they, they produced it with uh, XDR and some others. Um, so the Ross brothers, I know we talked about bloody nose, empty pockets a few years back, which wasn't your jam, but I thought it was awesome. I love these kinds. Of I recognized what experience. they were doing, um, uh, as, you know, in terms of the the sort of hybrid, you know, throw throw a situation at a group of people and see what happens. And they're they're extending that. That's great. I, yeah. I mean, but but the thing is, with bloody nose, empty pockets, it was a bunch of people in a bar, but it, the bar was actually a set and the, they cast it. In this case, they cast a bunch of teenagers going on this sort of Kerouac-like journey in a, in a road trip across the Pacific coast. And there's less, there's less um, focus to it. It's really just pure experience, but it's beautiful. I mean, it's just, you're fully immersed in these kids' lives and it feels like a very hopeful statement about the current generation. And because of that, I think it skews younger as an art film. And I appreciate that they, they're finding ways to do that without, you know, labeling. It doesn't need to be a documentary and doesn't need to, you know, they did cast it, but they also threw these kids into a van and they drive around and they go to house parties and they meet people along the way. I think you will appreciate a lot about this movie because it doesn't it doesn't have to be pigeonholed as a documentary. And, you know, OK, so it won't be shortlisted that way. Maybe it doesn't need the Oscar validation because it can be validated by other kinds of audiences that are into it. So. I did put up my doc predictions. It is um, a lot of stuff. And some of the stuff that's coming up at the festivals that I'm looking forward to include the Paul Simon, Alex Gibney movie, the stamped uh, from the beginning movie yep. from Roger Ross Williams um, and uh, the 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 four hour Frederick Weissman uh, from the four star Michelin uh, restaurant, you know, all these, all these different, there, there's just a ton of stuff. It's like a, a I can't wait to part. see the Wiseman movie. I mean, it, yeah. you all, you have to commit to those things because right. the time does not make it easy. Certainly not in a festival context. Well, the, but... Paul Simon is long too. It's like 208 minutes. Well, you know, he lived a long life and he's still around. Six so. decades this movie covers yeah. uh, so along with his latest album. Viable. Yeah. I will say I've been enjoying the fact that documentary filmmakers without boasting about it have been able to just cruise through this strike. Yes, it's harder in certain kinds of ways. The market is, is impacted, but like documentarians are still. No, they can talk. They can talk yeah. up a storm and they're it's going too to bad. They probably I booked a lot of interviews with documentarians. Yeah, I know it's good. This, this, this would be a good season for your doc sensibilities, though. I have to say it's unfortunate that that doesn't, you know, easily become a pathway to a best picture nomination for a documentary. I will not let that go. It's uh that market, that new market requirement for theatrical releases in what is it, 15 cities for best picture, 25 cities? It's 22. too many for most docs. Yeah, I mean it's just it's unfortunate, but hopefully that's a that's an ongoing process that that gets uh gets somewhere soon with the right kind of movie. 
So. All right. Well, Eric, I've uh, enjoyed talking to you. We will see what happens next see few you weeks. on the other side as the festival season takes off. Rest easy if you can.